Hello and welcome to Secondary Rules for the weekend of Saturday, the 15th of October. The Last Ye Be a Judge edition. I'm Joshua Neal. And I'm Ryan Goss. We are brought to you as always by the ANU Law School with new episodes out every Saturday. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And every week here on Secondary Rules, we pick something from my legal theory class this week and something from Ryan's public law class this week, and we'll talk them through to see what we can learn about law and maybe about the world beyond the law. Remember, you can find some links for our for further readings in our show notes. That's right, Joshua. And um, a big uh, thank you this week. We had a, a what would we call it? <laughs> an, an invite-only live episode of the podcast for some VIP guests to the ANU Law School. So we hope... Uh, those guests enjoyed it and we hope we can maybe do more of those hopefully maybe at some point we'll be able to do another uh, live show but for today let's get started this week in our first segment we will look at the panopticon and the pandemic and then after the break in our second segment we'll be thinking about how we get our high court judges but first in our first segment let's think about the panopticon now joshua in uh, legal theory this week you uh, did some reading of Foucault and thought about the Panopticon. I confess that I had a few encounters with Foucault and Derrida and these guys in my literature degree at undergrad, <laughs> and that was enough to put me off literature, studying literature <laughs> any further, and I turned my back on it uh, forevermore. But I, I did my best to grapple with Foucault this week when you instructed me to. Um, what, has that been your experience with these two, or as a philosopher, are you big fans of these these French guys? So I think we are agreed that we both don't like the French. <laughs> well, it's unverbal me. Hang on. <laughs> I mean, the, the French philosophers are really difficult. Perhaps I sometimes I suspect intentionally difficult. Interesting. Now, what turned you off, Foucault and Derrida? Well, it was in the context of of thinking about of critical literary theory, I think, and I was weighing up doing further studies in literature or further studies in history, and uh, it just seemed impenetrable, as you say. Maybe maybe impenetrable for the sake of it, I wondered sometimes. Uh, and uh, what I loved about literature, reading stories, reading, engaging with stories and novels and characters and themes seemed quite distant from Foucault and Derrida, so I, uh, I studied American history and <laughs> When I started, first started reading Foucault and Derrida, yeah. for many years I did not understand them. And I thought there must be something wrong with me. Maybe <laughs> I'm not smart enough. But at some point, it suddenly dawned upon me, it's them, not me. <laughs> There's something wrong with them. Well, let's, let's having bashed, uh, <laughs> bashed these distinguished <laughs> philosophers, let's engage with them a little bit. And, and in, the, in the Foucault that we were thinking about, you were thinking about, I should say, in class this week, and that we'll, we'll um, put some links to in our show notes. There was thinking about the panopticon. Now, the panopticon, when I think of the panopticon, I wasn't thinking immediately that we would be talking about Foucault, but more about Bentham. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, it, it relates to, on one level, um, prison architecture, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's, 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 it's a thought experiment which was put into reality, as mm -hmm. we can talk about, but in which you have a central tower or a central... Uh, spot for the jail guard um, with a circle of prison cells radiating or out around it in mm -hmm. a, semi, a semicircle or a circle, I mm -hmm. suppose, where um, at any given time, it's theoretically possible, as I understand it, that the prison guard 
could be looking into each mm. of the cells, could be keeping an eye on each of the prisoners, but the prisoners don't necessarily know when, when they are being watched. Mm. It's just that at any time the guard could be looking out from his or her superior position out on this this radiating set of satellite cells. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that what comes to mind when we think about the panopticon? Yeah, not the asymmetry. The guard can see, but is not seen. And the prisoner is seen, but can't see. So it breaks the combination of seeing and being seen. One party can see, the other can only be seen. Which and is a usual part of social interactions, we might think. That's of, right. Of many social interactions. Yeah, and that, it's the innovation of the panopticon, right? The allow, to allow architecturally to, uh, to enable this asymmetry uh, to be for prison control. And it's, it's it, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly coming from Bentham, it's extremely efficient because it, it allows for a minimum number of guards to oversee a maximum number of prisoners. Yeah. There was a, I was told that there is a panopticon prison in Tasmania. Yeah, I think at Port Arthur. I think I may have even visited it. And in, in, in the, uh, the penal colony of Port Arthur in South uh, East Tasmania, I think there was a, maybe a semicircular panopticon of a sort anyway. Um, or are you thinking of a different one? I'm, I have not been to Tasmania. Okay. I mean, uh, Tasmania always strike me as like really far away. I do not know what the, what is Tasmania like. Or what are, how are Tasmanians like? So this, but is it correct that Tasmania was created as a penal colony? Well, of course, um, uh, Botany Bay in Sydney was a, was a penal colony, and then, as I understand it, um, reasonably soon after that, very soon after that. Uh, Tasmania was settled as Van Diemen's Land, as it then was, as, a, as an additional penal colony, which had the virtue both of allowing the, from their perspective, the Brits of controlling the relevant waters around there, but also uh, dealing with the structural problem of how do you deal with misbehaving people at Botany Bay when they're already on the other side of the world <laughs> and in prison? What do, you, what do you have to threaten them with? Well, you can threaten them with sending them to... To Tasmania. To Tasmania or Van Diemen's Land or then to Norfolk Island and... Brisbane and various other places were added as a sort of infinite regression of punishment. <laughs> and beyond that is just the ocean. Well, indeed, yeah, indeed. So, so um, this is sort of a, uh, there, there are physical, this, this is interesting, I think, because it is a, at least in part, a thought experiment or a policy proposal as a, as a thought experiment that is then put into place in various places. That's right, and put into place in Tasmania. Yeah, yeah. Right, Bentham designed it sitting in his office in London, it was put into reality, put into practice in Tasmania in the context of a penal colony. So the prison ideology was not only limited to that prison, in fact, the whole colony yes. was a penal colony. So this idea of the panopticon was actually Bentham's idea. So Bentham, an English philosopher, Foucault took this idea and, tr and thought about it in a, a larger scale. So think about the panopticon ideology, but not just applied to prisons or penal colonies, but, but entire societies. And he thinks that's the world we live in. And so here we're thinking about um, not a literal prison, um, but uh, about surveillance culture about government's relationship with its citizens wherever they are in the country or wherever they are in the jurisdiction. Yeah. So the mass surveillance yeah. is his term. In, in the system of mass surveillance, we don't know whether 
we are being watched and the person who is watching us is not seen. So mass surveillance leads to a kind of disciplining of our behaviour. So it is this panopticon ideology applied at a large scale, panopticonism, writ large. I was told apparently we start talking about raincoats, the phone can listen to us and give us advertisements about raincoats. Well, I think you should update your privacy settings if, if you're getting too many ads for raincoats. <laughs> but I think, but, but the point I was going to make there is, is you said uh, we, we don't know if we're under surveillance at any given time. I mean, I think depending on which country we're in, depending on what devices we're using or not using, we, we might almost frame it as we can be certain we are under surveillance of sorts. Whether government surveillance is a different question, but under surveillance of sorts at all times, it's just what is being used of that and, and, and the extent to which it's identifiable as us as opposed to as a random person. Yeah, and also we do not know whether the data that is being gathered is actually being utilised. Yes. Right, so that uncertainty, it's central to the panopticon ideology. So if we know for a fact that someone is watching, like a person is watching, that doesn't quite work. It has to be, we do not know. Someone may be watching or they may not be watching. And that uncertainty is part of its power. In now, the, yeah. now in, in the Foucault, there's a lot of discussion of the plague or a plague as a device to explore this idea of surveillance, to explore this idea of a, of a broader understanding of the panopticon. Um, I, I assume when you talked about this in class, I don't know, but I assume this was therefore discussed in light of the last two or three years of pandemic and post or mid-pandemic experience that we've had not just in Australia, but around the world. Yeah, so the last few years, what was absolutely fascinating was the state surveillance capacity was made transparent. And in that transparency lies its power. That is, we could see exactly how the state is carrying out its surveillance. Usually, it's the, if it is done at all, it is done in secret. The power of the state was on full display during the pandemic in a way that Foucault thinks that the power of the state operates in the background in normal times, but in the pandemic situation, the power of the state is there for all to see. Now, we, and we will get onto that, but I think we also saw some limitations on the power of the state over the last few years. Anyone who downloaded the COVID Safe app onto their phone <laughs> and got daily reminders that the COVID Safe app was not working, then there was you know millions of dollars spent on it and very few cases identified as a result of it, perhaps demonstrated one of the, the, the weaknesses of the state. But nonetheless, it was an attempt by the state to do precisely what you're talking about. And in some other jurisdictions around the world, they've been... Um, uh, more terrifyingly competent at some of these things than the Australian government perhaps was. Yeah, just imagine even in Australia, the check-in apps, not the COVID safe, safe app, which was uh, a debacle. Yeah. The check-in apps, wherever you go, you have to check in. Right? Scanning QR codes before you can sit down at a restaurant, before you could enter a shopping mall, you have to scan your QR codes. Contact tracing, which is tracing movement and movement control, border closures, the listing of exposure sites. And we know where the infected people have traveled, their daily itiner the daily itinerary of the infected. Yes, you took great interest in those, if I recall correctly. <laughs> well, we all do this, but... And Dixon Woolworth was a repeated exposure site. 
for some reason, right? I do not know why. I, I understand <laughs> that's where you do your shopping. <laughs> I, I avoided it during the relevant periods to avoid being. And I suspect most of our, many of our colleagues, many academics live in that vicinity sure. of Dixon Woolworth. I, I, I think it's not just a coincidence. <laughs> These academics, I don't know what they're up to. I'm going to save you from straying into a, further into the realms of conspiracy theory there, Joshua. But, but what this meant, therefore, was we saw those measures being enacted by, let's just think about Australia for now, by state and territory governments to, to varying extents. Uh, we saw them enacted by the Commonwealth Government to varying, again, extents of competence and, and success. Uh, but a, a wealth of these measures uh, all across the country. And there was opposition to them, but perhaps not as much opposition as some may have expected. Um, and not certainly not as much opposition as we might have seen in some other countries around the world. What what does Foucault and perhaps Bentham tell us about the nature of that opposition or the nature of the criticism, if we put it that way, to the COVID measures? Yeah. In the last few years, looking at the opposition, the opposition came from the left and the right, which is fascinating, right? Usually the left and the right seldom agree on anything. But there is a right-wing critique of pandemic measures, just as much as there was a left-wing critique of the pandemic measures. If, if it came from the right, that's libertarian. If it came from the left, my sense is the human rights types also have uh, issues with the pandemic measures that neither were happy with the state exercising the power to, to carry out mass surveillance. Now, Foucault would say, I think, that's what the state has been doing all along. Yes. It's just that now we see it on full display. It's powerful, but it's actually in normal times, it's even more powerful by virtue of it being done in secret. Yes, so there was some extent to which perhaps the, the, the visible presence of all of these measures during the last couple of years meant everyone was well aware of them and was scrutinising them and the uses to which the information might be put and the, the extent to which governments might use it. Your argument is in, in regular times that's all happening in the background, but people, at least to some extent, people just don't notice it. That, that's at least that's Foucault's, 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 that's Foucault's argument. argument. Sorry, yes. That's Foucault's argument. And we might think of whether is there a way to defend the state Right, and this we move from a critique of the state measures of considering whether there are ways we could defend what the state did over yeah. the past two to three years. And the preeminent theorist of the state, the preeminent defender of the state is Hobbes. Good friend of the show. We've met Hobbes before. <laughs> what does Hobbes have to say here? So Hobbes, if you in one, 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 one of our earlier episodes, yeah. I think, we talk about the state of nature that we imagine being in a state of nature. The state of nature is a condition without the state. And we ask ourselves, why would we create the state collectively? And Hobbes' answer was, we do that for self-preservation. We need the state to preserve our lives. Otherwise, we'll be threatened by each other, by nature, by various uh, 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 uncertainties in life. And he said, with, for example, as listeners may remember, and uh, if, if we didn't have the state, we wouldn't be able to sleep soundly at night. We'd be worried that someone would be breaking down our door to take our stuff or to hurt or kill us and take all of our possessions and the yeah, like. And life would be nasty, brutish and short. Very good. And he would include the fact that people might infect us with their disease without the state protecting us from them. Mm. So 
self-preservation is the main reason we create the state, and therefore, protection of life and limb is the first duty of government. If the state can't protect your life, nothing else matters. Now, just to dwell on that, when he says, when you, when you talk about self-preservation, it's self-preservation of each of us as human beings or self-preservation of the state? Self-preservation of... Now, here is Hobbes' brilliance. Yeah. The preservation of each of us as human beings, the preservation of our individual lives is tied to the preservation of the state. Yes. And that is the brilliant move. We need to preserve the state in order to preserve our lives. Without the state, we are dead ducks. And because we don't want to die... We need to preserve the state. And therefore, there is now a coming together of state interests and individual interests. And which can be, one might think, exploited by a cynical government if they wish to. Yeah, but I think Hobbes will think a cynical government is still better than no government at all. Yeah, okay. Right? Imagine if there is no government, pandemic measures can't be carried out, not least because there will be huge coordination problems. And so on this picture of the, of, of the state and the law, the state precedes law. The state comes first. We need a state. Yes. And then the state might then create a legal system for governance to enhance its governance capacity. And insofar as state measures are needed, as far as possible, it should be done through law. But I think Hobbes should be open to the possibility that, if necessary, the state might need to act without law. In a time of real emergency, particularly requiring a quick response, war or insurrection, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, about? so um, emergency disaster, for yeah. example, and we can think of there are two types of disasters, natural disaster versus human disaster, right? So natural disaster are naturally caused a pandemic might be a natural disaster. War is a human disaster. Yeah. So I think those two categories, pandemic and war, one might think of them as the paradigmatic instances of uh, situations which should require a state response. And in both instances, law is always iffy, right? Risky. Are we, I'm conscious we may be going to be talking about this more a little bit next week, but yes. when you say law is iffy or risky, what do you mean? That there are drawbacks to acting through law in those circumstances? Listen, there's a worry... Downsides. Downsides, that's right. Encapsulated in a slogan that the constitution is not a suicide pact. If abiding by the constitution means that we will all die, we don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> and if we don't want to die, what do we do with law? Well, I think we should, um, because this is raising questions, I think, if, if you're leading us towards states of exception and extra legal or extra constitutional times, should we talk about those in a little bit more detail next week? Yes, yeah, so the, what I provided was a teaser. A teaser. A teaser good. for next week. This is a very elegant, sophisticated uh, <laughs> podcast segueing here. Um, so we will, we will leave the Panopticon there, but we will return to this theme and pick it up in a little bit more detail next week, I think, because it raises big questions, not just about legal theory, but also about public law and mm. human, human rights and all sorts of other questions. But should we leave the Panopticon there? Yes. And, and, we'll, we'll, leave, and we'll leave the French aside. <laughs> in this course and in this podcast, no we will not talk about the French ever again. No more French. We banish them. <laughs> we'll be back after the break. 
Welcome back. Now turning to public law, Justice Gagler said something interesting. Last weekend, I might mention Justice Gagler is an alumnus of this uh, esteemed law school. Proud alum of the ANU. Yeah, and Justice Gagler was giving a speech in, in Melbourne, I think, and in that speech, he expressed support for some of the recommendations in a recent Australian Law Reform Commission report. And that report was about all sorts of things to do with judges and judicial bias. But for our purposes, and what we talked about this week in public law, and I think very topical at the moment, there was discussion around how we appoint our High Court judges and how we get our High Court judges, how we choose our High Court judges, how the seven, perhaps seven most powerful lawyers or judges in the land get to be in those uh, seats on the other side of the lake in the High Court. And so I think this raises questions around um, what we expect of our courts, who we want to be on our courts. And we know, of course, that next week, and we can talk about more about this, that the High Court will have a new judge and will move to being a um, four women and three men court. So it's a good time to be thinking about how we get our judges and, and what we, how we could do it differently. So what's the current system for appointments of justices to the High Court? Yeah, so the current system in Australia is uh, very similar to what the system was in the UK for a long time, mm-hmm. from which we draw so much of our, our public law, which is really, to simplify it down, the Attorney General and Prime Minister in some combination can choose who they like and make a recommendation to the Governor General who then appoints uh, whoever it is that is recommended by the government of the day. Uh, so is that in the Constitution? So the Constitution allows the Governor General and Council to appoint the, the judges, and then there's legislation underlying that. There's, a, there's, there's little bits um, of law here. So the High Court Act 1979, for example, says that where there is a vacancy in the High Court, then the Federal Attorney General shall consult with the Attorney General of the states in relation to the appointment. So that's a fairly light obligation on the Federal Attorney General. He or she has to write letters to the six uh, state attorneys general and ask them for names and ask them for suggestions. It's, it's a little bit of structure, but it's, it's, there, it's only for a, uh, a consultation and it's certainly not binding on the, on the federal government. So it's, I think, um, Jared Brennan, uh, Sir Jared Brennan, the former Chief Justice of the High Court, now passed away, said in 2008, he used language of saying, the process for appointing judges is unstructured, the criteria, criteria for making appointments are not defined, little is known publicly about the appointment process, there are no established internal rules, writing some time ago then at least, and the appointment process has varied according to the personal preferences of individual federal attorneys general. So this is this process there, and we can try and speculate on how it works at the moment, but really it's a bit of a black box, and we just get an announcement, as we did a few weeks ago from the Attorney General and the Prime Minister, there's a new High Court judge, and that's really all we know. And the Law Reform Commission also has issues with the current appointment process, uh, uh, echoing what Brennan said. Yeah, so the Law Reform Commission report doesn't make a um, recommendation as to precisely what we should do, but what they point out is that the current process has, um, has flaws. Above all, they say it's simply not transparent and uh, it risks creating a perception that, uh, however wrong the perception is, that, that appointments are made for political grip basis or, or patronage basis. And I think that's particularly an issue these days with the US looming so large in our political and public imagination. We can talk about that if we like. They also think, the Law Reform Commission thinks there should be more transparency around the criteria by which we choose judges, not just for the High Court, but for federal courts perhaps as well. And also a concern that transparency would allow us to ensure that our appointments are drawn from the widest possible pool of candidates. So 
to ensure that people aren't missed, that people aren't discriminated against, that we aren't uh, fishing in this in a very small pond. So one way to remedy that is to allow for people to apply for these jobs. It's one of the few jobs in the world, I think, that you can't actually apply for at the moment. And, and that might be one way to widen the pool if there is actually an application process to be a judge. Yeah, that's right. And it, um, there have been times in Australia where, where judicial appointments have been done differently. So the previous Labor government in um, the sort of 2008 to 2013 range did adopt a, a different um, uh, process. It wasn't legislated. It certainly wasn't in the constitution. But that process included, for example, um, allowing people to register an expression of interest in becoming a judge, uh, uh, advert advertising vacancies on the bench in certain circumstances, uh, and calling for uh, input from a much wider range of organisations and, and consulting with a wider range of organisations. But you can see quite distinct uh, alternatives in the UK, if you go to the UK's um, Judicial Appointments Commission, you can click on through to vacancies and see the list of vacancies that are available at the moment on various uh, courts in England and Wales, for example, and, and lodge applications. You see ads in the papers. Um, sometimes you see this in Australia at the state level as well, ads in the paper for vacancies on a particular court or a particular uh, uh, tribunal, as the case may be. So how does the process work in the UK? So the UK system was originally looked very much like ours. They had the Lord Chancellor in their case, which was this quirky constitutional office, and the Prime Minister choosing names, and it was a pretty black box process again, and the Queen just made the appointments. Uh, they've moved over the last uh, few decades, they've moved to a more formalised process. They have a Judicial Appointments Commission, which uh, is composed of a range of uh, uh, lawyers and non-lawyers and people from throughout the community. Um, that makes appointments to, or recommends appointments, I should say, to the uh, all the courts below the Supreme Court. And then there is a, a broadly similar sort of process uh, more on a more ad hoc basis for vacancies to the UK Supreme Court. But all of which allows for, and I'm sure there are flaws and we, there are criticisms of that process, but it allows for more of what the Australian Law Reform Commission has called for. Transparency uh, has allowed to limit any, limit, not remove, but limit the chance that people perceive political patronage as being a factor and allow people to better understand the process of how they get their judges in the UK. If we want full transparency, shouldn't we look across the Atlantic and look at the American model instead? I mean, there we have full transparency. The world's cameras have all, are trained on the nominees at the Senate Judicial Committee hearings. Now, wouldn't that be another model? Yeah, so the, the, the Law Reform Commission says, uh, in, in more or less these words, no one wants the American model. But, <laughs> but I think it is worth looking at because it helps us understand what exactly we want and what we don't want, right? So what is the American so, model? How does it work? Yeah, so under the US Constitution, uh, the um, president nominates judges, including justices of the Supreme Court, for example. And um, before they are appointed, before they become take office, um, we need to have the advice and consent of the US Senate. And uh, in this day and age, that means the US Senate voting um, through the Senate Judiciary Committee and then for the full Senate in favour of a particular judicial appointee. So the president suggests and nominates a name. That person appears before the Senate Judicial Committee, which is a subcommittee of the Senate. And that's what we see on television, right? The, the, the grilling of the nominee. Yeah, many of our listeners will have seen this. It's, it's often great, extraordinary, gripping, enraging, inspiring television viewing uh, because you have a number of senators 
cross-examining a usually a fairly distinguished lawyer or judge uh, about uh, every aspect of their professional and in some cases personal lives going back many decades, uh, poring over uh, articles or essays even they wrote, papers they wrote as an undergraduate or as a law student, uh, things they've done in their personal life at all ages as we've seen, uh, and certainly then uh, uh, judgments they've handed down as a, as a federal judge or as a state judge or documents they've written as a government lawyer or a private lawyer, just granular detail analysis of everything the judge has expressed in the past. And what's wrong with that? It seems if we want that this gives us trans maximum transparency, right? We scrutinize the candidate, the senator scrutinize the candidate, the public watch the senator scrutinizing the candidate. If you want to be the judge of the highest court in the land, you should stand up to scrutiny. Well, I think it, de it, it depends what we expect of our judges and what, we, what the job is we ask them to do. Uh, the role of a Supreme Court judge in the US is similar in some respects to the role of a High Court judge here, but also quite different in terms of what they're asked to do. Uh, the, the role of the Bill of Rights, the role of um, constitutional litigation in the US and linked to that, the politicisation of uh, the, the, the cases and perhaps even the, well, certainly even the bench, have sort of changed what the, I think, American uh, lawyers, American judges, American public expect of their Supreme Court and ask of their Supreme Court. And it makes all the stakes a lot higher. So it means that scrutinising a Supreme Court judge who's appointed for life in the US is, is almost the same as scrutinising someone who wants to be president or wants to be senator because the, the, the power and the significance of the decisions that they make uh, are such, and the, the length of their tenure is such, that people want to be extremely sure in the way that they might want to be for about a president or a, a state governor or something like that. So the politicization of the judiciary in America has led to a politicization of the judicial appointments process as well. I mean, would that be a right way to think about it? And so if we do not want to politicize our judiciary, we should not also politicize our judicial appointment process. Well, I suspect there's a chicken and egg element there as well, that, that once you have... Um, once you have some of the decisions being made by the court and once you have the the, the perception of the politicisation, then that only becomes self-reinforcing as well. But it's certainly the case that now in the United States, if it wasn't the case before, that the you know there are identifiably Republican-appointed judges, Democrat-appointed judges, and uh, in many cases they, they decide in different constellations and different kaleidoscopes of opinions, but certainly on the big hot-button constitutional cases and others, you can see them lining up very neatly on partisan lines which is very, very rare indeed in Australia. So we do not want the American model? Well, I, I don't think so. I don't think anyone's proposing the American model, but I think you, you make the case. This is a significant job. Um, the, 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 it is possible to imagine a, a committee of the Australian Senate or a committee of the Australian Parliament holding some sort of interview or hearings with the judges. Televised? Well, we're imagining, Joshua, we can, <laughs> we can imagine it televised, we can imagine in the, in the middle of the, the Sydney cricket ground, if you prefer. But, um, but, but there, are the, there, are, there are interim steps. I don't know a lot about the Canadian system, but I know, for example, potential appointees to the Canadian Supreme Court need to fill out really lengthy um, uh, surveys, really lengthy forms, detailing not only things they have done, or, you know, their CV and so on, but their views on certain questions so that there is a degree of transparency before they come on. I think there's also a question underlying this here of, um, 
attention, and you see this in the US hearings, don't you, where a judge is asked, well, what would you do if a certain type of case came before you? And they often refuse to answer those questions. They often refuse to answer it, and, and their response would be, as I think many Australian judges' response would be, well, I need to see the facts, and I need to hear the arguments, and I need to look at it closely and, and, and think it through, and you, you, the public, don't want me having a preconceived notion of what my answer to those questions is going to be. I think in the US context that becomes harder when so many of the questions are so hardly fought, mm. so politicised, and where in many cases the same judges are so, who are saying, oh, you don't, I, don't, I don't have a view, have long track <laughs> records of writing papers, of writing judgments that very clearly express a view. So that if we do that, that will turn the High Court of Australia into a very different institution. Well, I think it would be interesting to see because... It, would, it could turn it into a different institution, but also in the absence of other changes, once the judges then got onto the bench in the High Court, well, they wouldn't be uh, determining many you know, Bill of Rights cases, Human Rights Act cases, uh, that would give them quite the same realm for partisan politics that we see in the United States. It's common to say Australian High Court judgments aren't political. I mean, that's that's plainly untrue. Every you know, any big constitutional case involves small p political issues. What it less commonly involves is partisan political issues. I think you can look at the the High Court of Australia and um, see judges reaching different results to how they probably vote and different uh, in, in the ballot box and different results to what their personal political preferences are, because for the most part, as far as we can tell, those things are are disconnected in Australia. But it doesn't mean. Um, those decisions aren't political. And Justice Gagler, and to come back to where we started in his speech on the weekend, did speak about the risks of a politicised judiciary in Australia. And he, he clearly had the US in mind, the risk, the spectre of the United States in so many areas of Australian public law looms as both an example and as a, a cautionary tale. So Ryan, you're being slippery here before we end. Let me okay. pin you to a position. Yeah. yeah. The US model... No, 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 no. Ah, no, definitely right? Not, definitely so not. definitely, so no, we, no. Not, we do not like the American model. No, no. So we started with French bashing, <laughs> and then now we have bashed the American model. And now so we're ruling that out, so we're banishing the American model as a possibility, and we will wait and see what the government will actually do to reform our judicial appointments process. And certainly it seems the government has expressed support for the ALRC recommendations at least one High Court judge has expressed report. So I think support, so we'll see some some movement, exactly how those uh, sort of in-principle recommendations are translated into legislation potentially or guidelines, we'll, we'll need to wait and see. Now, Ryan, you visited the High Court. Yeah, so Last I, week. I, I wanted to say to our listeners that... Uh, the High Court has had, had some limits on, on visiting over the last couple of years of the pandemic. It is open again for visits. So particularly for our listeners who are in Canberra and particularly for our law student listens, listeners who over the last couple of years haven't been able to go to the High Court, can I encourage you, uh, pop over the lake from the ANU and, and visit the High Court. There's uh, tour guides there, many of whom are our students or former students. There's a museum there with information, or mini museum with information about some of the big cases uh, in the court's history, mostly the big constitutional cases. Uh, and, it, you know, being in Canberra, one of the great fun uh, and privileges of being in Canberra is being able to access those national institutions so easily. There is a nice cafe at the National Portrait Gallery next to the High Court. Next to the High Court, that's right. I should say that I have not received any commission. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we are willing to read ads subject to our new policy, but, but that is not enough. And in the, the, for the big news, the High Court news, uh, last week was the retirement of Justice Keane and uh, his seat being taken by Justice Jago. Ryan, you were working for Justice Keane when he was at the Queensland Supreme Court, so he was your former boss. 
Yeah, so so Justice Keane will retire in the next few days as listeners are listening to this podcast and Justice Jago will take uh, his seat. So a new era will begin on, on the court. Uh, and there have been a number of tributes being published to, to Justice Keane, including in the Australian Financial Review uh, this week. Uh, and uh, I think it, it is a time for those of us who are fortunate to work for him, I didn't work for him on the High Court, uh, are sharing memories and sharing reflections at the moment. Uh, he was a w- truly terrific boss to work for. And I think as the as some of the tributes are showing, uh, really both paired a uh, intellectual powerhouse with uh, just being a lovely person, generous with his time, uh, and a, a thoughtful boss and uh, an enjoyable person to spend time with. So, so uh, Australia will will miss Justice Keane, but we hope he will enjoy his retirement. What do retired justices do? Well, I think in the article he said he intends to sit on the beach for a few months, but uh, uh, but. In Australia, retired judges are often called upon to do things like royal commissions of various sorts, inquiries into things. Uh, sometimes they do uh, arbitrations or mediations, and, and certainly um, some former Australian High Court judges have done all of those things. Some of them have sat on foreign courts in the region or around the world as sort of part-time visiting international judges, uh, although that's increasingly fraught with difficulty, it seems. So there are a variety of things open to, to former High Court judges, and some of them Indeed, teach at the ANU and, and gives talks and seminars at the ANU from time to time. Also, Justice Keane will be kept busy. I, well, I certainly hope so, as busy as he wants to. <laughs> Secondary Rules will be back same time, same place next weekend. And next week, we will talk about torture and terror and rights and wrongs. Dramatic. Today's program was produced not less than 100 miles from Sydney by Jack O'Brien and Tom Furin. Our thanks to the ANU Law School. If you'd like to know more, don't forget to check out today's show notes our theme music is by soul shifters if you like the show please don't forget to follow or subscribe and give us a rating if you're feeling generous wherever you get your podcasts we are joshua neo and ryan goss thank you josh thanks ryan see you next week everyone bye